Picture this, you're sitting down to watch a live poetry performance. The first poet takes the stage, and as they begin to read, they're accompanied by a live jazz band. If this sounds intriguing, well, you're in luck. International Jazz Poetry Month returns to Pittsburgh on May 2nd. The festival features more than 50 artists, including local jazz icons and poets from Algeria, Cuba, Sudan, and Ukraine. Tickets to watch online or in person at City of Asylum's home on the north side are free. Get yours at cityofasylum.org before they're gone. Today on CityCast Pittsburgh, a homeless shelter downtown is closing, our state's only coastline could get some national recognition, and we're celebrating the trailblazing Pittsburgh artist you've probably never heard of. It's May 26th, the Friday News Roundup. I'm Mallory Falk, and here's what Pittsburgh's talking about. I'm with Hey Pittsburgh editor Francesca DeBecco. Good morning. Hey, good morning. And audio producer Maria Carter. Hello. Hey, Mallory. Before we get into today's conversation, CityCast could actually use a favor from you, our loyal listeners. Yeah, help us out. We're surveying everyone to help make the podcast even better for you. You just need to go to citycast.fm slash survey. It only takes five minutes. We timed it out. Um, And if you make it to the end, you'll be eligible to win a $250 Visa gift card. So there's something in it for you besides helping out uh, (laughs) the the pod and newsletter squad. There's some or something, right? Exactly. (laughs) So uh, again, that's citycast.fm slash survey. All right, on to the show. Maria, you've been following news that one of the two low-barrier homeless shelters downtown is closing. Yeah, um, this is actually the Smithfield Street shelter. It's in the basement of a church. And it's really a, a shelter that has been open in Pittsburgh for a while, but is really meant to be for the winter months, an emergency shelter versus a year-round shelter. But this year, the county noted that people still had this need and let it stay open a little bit longer. But now um, that's changing. At the end of June, they're planning on uh, closing that. Yeah, I read that it hosts more than 100 people per night. So it's, you know, we're really concerned about what's going to happen for those folks. Yeah. And, you know, I think anyone in Pittsburgh has probably seen more homeless encampments over the past year or two around the city when they're, you know, driving and going different places, especially since it's the summer months. I think there's a concern that, you know, those numbers could only rise in those homeless encampments. An expert on our um, unhoused neighbors here actually said that uh, people living outside is expected to increase by 50 percent over the summer. That's quite a lot. Yeah. And even, you know, with these emergency shelters, one of the things is you have to be out at 7 a.m. in the morning, you know, and so people are outside already a lot that are staying there. So, Maria, you mentioned that the Smithfield shelter has been around for a while. Um, I know recently the county opened another low barrier shelter, Second Avenue Commons, But that like filled up immediately as soon as it opened. And I remember, you know, some of these encampments were cleared in advance of that shelter opening, but then clearly there wasn't enough space there. There wasn't enough capacity. And so it makes sense that there was like this increased need for um, the Smithfield shelter and for it to kind of 
extend its term. Yeah, actually, this winter, the county wasn't even planning on opening the Smithfield shelter. Um, They were just because the Second Avenue Commons was expected to open, which was new and expected to kind of, I guess, take its place in a lot of ways. But then there were delays. And so they did open it. And then, you know, Second Avenue Commons quickly filled up and there was still a need for Smithfield that was pretty much filling up most nights. Yeah. And I should just step back um, and kind of define what low barrier means, um, which is there's just like fewer restrictions than you might find at some other shelters. So I know it means, you know, couples are often able to stay together. There aren't the same requirements around sobriety. Um, These are spaces that people who might not be able to access beds in another shelter uh, can go to. I think in some of them, too, they're allowed to bring their pets. Yeah, I know that's, I'm pretty certain that's the case in the Second Avenue yeah. commons. So going back a little bit, what do we know about why it's closing? Um, well, there are some reasons. Uh, one is that it doesn't have air conditioning. And right. they've been using some like window units and temporary units, but it doesn't sound like a pleasant place to spend um, the summer months, perhaps. And so, and you know, and can become more of a health concern over the summer, too. So that is, you know, the main reason. Business owners ha- nearby have also complained um, about it. I think, you know, during the winter, probably even when people have to leave at 7 a.m., they're seeking indoor spaces, whereas it's been beautiful out. <laughs> they're, you know, more likely to hang out outside, and business owners are saying they're um, seeing a decrease in some traffic. Mm. And so, you know, they talked to the county about it. The county's like, well, we've taken that into consideration, but that's not why we're closing this. And, you know, there will be other problems that come with it closing. Yeah. I mean, I I was reading um, some reporting from Kylie Kaczynski and WESA. Yeah, she's done a great job covering yeah, this. Um, her, her reporting on this is great. We'll definitely link in our show notes. But she was talking about um, the fact that this might actually mean that folks really get scattered farther, like beyond just downtown. Yeah. There are also, you know, I know there's at least one or two shelters in McKeesport and other places. And so... That presents its own challenges for the unhoused population because a lot of the services that they might want to partake in are downtown. And so the county's still trying to figure out if they will be providing transportation and, you know, how that all might work. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, you know, it might mean that even though you're not seeing homeless populations downtown, you're seeing them more in other parts of the county than previously. I think there's maybe been this sense of, okay, if I avoid downtown, if I don't want to see this, if I want to kind of pretend that this isn't happening, I can just like avoid Market Square. I can avoid downtown. And and that's not yeah going to be the case. And you're also not helping anyone by not acknowledging that something is there and that our unhoused neighbors need help. Um, let's talk a little bit about long-term solutions before we offer folks ways that they can actually help. Um, earlier this month, City Council unveiled a plan um, to provide unhoused residents with new longer-term accommodations. So this proposal includes transforming offices into dorm-style apartment complexes. That's, you know, obviously all of these unused offices down Town. That's a good, you know, use of that space. Uh, building a village of tiny homes. Not sure where that's going to be located or if they've nailed that down, but um, that's an interesting idea. And constructing a long-term shelter similar to the one on Second Avenue. So we already talked about that's overflowed. There, there's a need for for another one. 
Yeah. And I think those are three strategies, you know, that kind of fall under the rubric of maybe housing first. You know, uh, Pittsburgh talks a lot about transitional housing. And the goal of that is to help people get off the streets and really into a more permanent situation. Right. And um, even like when you say long term, you're so accurate, Francesca, <laughs> because Second Street Commons took four years from idea to opening, mm, right. you know, so if you look at it the same way, it's likely going to be a while. Even they haven't identified where tiny homes could go. Yeah. And those would be fairly quick in comparison. Yeah. And, you know, but you've got to figure out the land and, you know, utilities and all these other things. Yeah, I think that's what's challenging is that, you know, there there's this focus on housing first and creating, you know, b- better alternatives than a shelter that does not have air conditioning, but but those aren't in place right now. So where do people go? You know, people yeah. have these immediate housing needs. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's um, some of the concerns about you know rising encampment numbers, which aren't great because those don't have like toilets and you know all these things, and can be very unsanitary for the people living there, but also for the waterways, nearby neighbors, et cetera. And as we've covered on the show before, there are not a lot of good public restroom options downtown. There really aren't, you know, which is which creates challenges both for unhoused folks and for, for everybody who uh, Anyone with a small needs bladder. to relieve themselves. Yeah, exactly, downtown. So how can folks of the city of Pittsburgh get involved or help out? I mean, one thing I know my mom sort of always trained me with was just like carrying some extra like apples or bananas or something or or granola bars like non-perishables. Yeah. So if you're driving by and you see someone who's in need, like you never know you know, that might be one of the only things they eat that day. Yeah. I mean, I think that's always kind and, you know, helps that person out in the moment. It doesn't really solve them being unhoused. Yeah. You know, even if you gave them a whole backpack full of food. um, And, you know, so I think it's, it's really got to be some of the longer term solutions and looking at it in a more comprehensive way. So my advice would be, Write, write your county council person, your city council person, and advocate for policies that could help the, the situation. The other thing is affordable housing a lot. There's a big connection um, between affordable housing and ho- or lack of affordable housing and homelessness. Yeah. Because if you're on the edge of things, you lose your job, whatever, it's easily, you know, it's easy to go to being homeless. So, you know, that would be another thing to advocate for. Do you like to dance, look at beautiful art, eat gourmet snacks, people watch? Well, mark your calendars for Friday, June 7th for one of my favorite parties in Pittsburgh. It's Mattress Factory's 25th Garden Party. The theme this year is make-believe, and it's all to celebrate and support the creatives in our community. There's going to be live music, an open bar, an art auction, and probably my favorite, the costume contest. Trust me, I will be judging yins and so will everyone else 
that's there. Be playful, be imaginative, explore your magical realm because this is a theme party. You wanna come dressed to impress. You must be 21 and up to attend and rest assured every dollar raised goes directly towards supporting the museum, its art, its education, and all of its community outreach initiatives. Get your tickets now to the 25th Mattress Factory Garden Party. They are in our show notes and online at mattress.org. It's almost summertime. It's, I think, this weekend, Memorial Day weekend is kind of the official start. Um, And, you know, Pennsylvania is not really known as a beachy getaway. Like, there's not great beach access from Pittsburgh. Just a river beach. Just a river (laughs) beach. (laughs) Um, But there is Presque Isle on Lake Erie, which is Pennsylvania's only quote-unquote seashore. I went to their website and they have seashore in quotes, so they're putting themselves down. (laughs) Because Um, it's not a sea by the technical definition. Exactly, but you got the sand, you got the water. Have either of you been to Presque Isle? I have. I went, uh, well, I went to Presque Isle proper once last summer, but I've been to Erie twice last summer. I'm a fan. I have not been since I was a child, and I don't know. I think I need to make it back for a little day trip. It's a great option for folks in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and I mean, you could fool yourself into thinking it's the sea. In a lot of ways, it is very sandy and beachy in lots of parts of Presque Isle. Or there are also, if you're into biking, it's a nice flat bike trail around there and lots of other stuff you can do. It gives Um, you the vibes. Yeah, you you get the vibes. You got your beach (laughs) towel, you got your beach read. (laughs) You might as well be at the beach. (laughs) I haven't been to Presque Isle. I spent a little time on Lake Erie in high school. You know, it's not the most beautiful or pristine area. Like you said, it it gets the job done. Um, And Lake Erie might actually be getting a really cool designation as a national marine sanctuary. Wait, what's that? So, yeah, when I first heard that, to be honest, I thought that meant like a sanctuary for marine life. I was like, did I miss the dolphins that hang around (laughs) when I was at Lake Erie back in 2004? Um, But it actually, and there are some uh, national marine sanctuaries that are about protecting, you know, endangered aquatic life, but others are dedicated to uh, preserving historic shipwrecks. And it turns out there are a lot of shipwrecks off of Lake Erie. Yeah, I put this in the newsletter this week. Um, There are 35 known shipwrecks in Lake Erie, but there's actually as many as 196 vessels that have reportedly sunk there. So there is a lot to be discovered. Um, And I think that's the main driving point behind making this um, sort of a protected space as a national marine sanctuary so that they can really get in there and discover it and, um, you know, learn more about the history, I guess, pull out those artifacts from under the water. Um, So you want to hear something kind of cool? Always. Yeah. So Erie is super into its sunken ships. Um, Yeah. So they have a maritime museum. And one of the things that's docked there and in Erie is the USS Niagara, which was really important in the 1812 war when we were fighting the British again. And, you know, Canada was all British. And so we were like, oh, got to stop Canada. You know, anyway. So but they actually sunk that ship. Wow. Like the the ship, the USS Niagara, a few years after the war to preserve it. 
Oh, what? yeah, what? on purpose, on purpose. Is this like a well-known strategy? Yeah, apparently, yes. You sink a ship and like, I guess you can just haul it back up if you need it again. And it's fairly well preserved. But how? <laughs> I don't I, get You it. know, they didn't go into the details of how to sink a ship with me. But, <laughs> you know, I'm yeah, they sunk it. And um, and then. Uh, I think it was 100 years later for the anniversary of the war. They brought it back up and started restoring it and then restored it a few more times. And now you can go sail around it. What a time capsule. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I think what's really neat about this designation is that, like, we're talking about this area's like long and rich history of people having a relationship with, you know, maritime environments. So I would love to learn more about like the indigenous folk yeah. who like first called this home and um, and then on to like later, like you said, like the sinking ships. But then also apparently it has uh, a large prominence in the Underground Railroad. So that would yeah. be really... The Maritime Museum didn't go into that. So <sighs> I know, I know. See, this is why they're getting a designation. <laughs> um, but one of the things, just kind of looking up, I was looking up Lake Erie facts like one does. Um, it is the shallowest of the Great Lakes, which is part of why there are so many shipwrecks oh, there. That the average sense. depth, any guesses? Oh, no Oof. idea. No. Okay, 62 <laughs> feet. Are you kidding no, that doesn't. Yeah, seem... that's, yeah, it's shallow, and then you got all the lakes, like weather and stuff, and I guess the ship's gonna sink there. Wow, this is I did not know this history at all. Yeah, visit um, Erie. Don't don't give up the ship. Visit Erie. <laughs> that's their motto. You'll see it everywhere up there. <laughs> well, so um, you know, the Biden administration just took the first step toward making this like official designation, I guess. Uh, Erie itself requested this designation a while ago. Um, the process could take several years, um, but if it gets the designation, that means like it would receive federal funding to help find shipwrecks in the in the lake and also preserve them, and then also boost some of the education around things exactly like you mentioned, like its role on the Underground Railroad. Um, I'm curious, does anyone have any guesses when the first National Marine Sanctuary was created? 1972. Am I close? Do I lose on prices right rules? <laughs> <laughs> you are very close. I don't know prices right rules to know whether or not. Did I go qualify. over? If I'm over, I, I'm out. You're under. Yes. Nice. It was 1975. <gasps> You're so close. So the USS Monitor, which was this Civil War era warship, survived the battles, but then sank during a storm, um, you know, was discovered in North Carolina. And originally the idea was to protect this shipwreck, to, to learn from it, to preserve like, you know, um, everything that had gone down with the ship. But then they discovered that there was this like artificial reef that had grown around it. And so it's also protected partly as a way to study like the marine environment of this wreck site to see like what happens, oh, what grows cool. around these so shipwrecks. stay tuned, Erie. Yeah, so yeah. stay tuned, Erie. Maybe there's... Uh, a whole cool. world in your depths, in, well, in your sh in your shallow depths. I guess you learned. <laughs> Why does that sound poetic? <laughs> so, those of you who read the Hey Pittsburgh newsletter know that I run a historical feature every Monday, and this Monday happened to be my birthday. So I shined Happy birthday. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So I shine a spotlight on a person of Pittsburgh's past who actually shares my birthday. 
Have any of you ever heard of Mary Cassatt? No, not until I read the newsletter. I was going to say I did when I edited the newsletter, but before that, I had never heard this name. Yes. So I hadn't heard of her either until I researched her. Uh, She was a suffragist and an Impressionist painter who was born in Allegheny City 179 years ago. So this was before um, Allegheny City was annexed into the city of Pittsburgh. Um, And she is known for her endearing portraits of everyday women and mothers tending to their children. Um, She uses these lively tones and like beautiful color harmonies. And this was actually a radical display of familial moments for its time. Um, She sort of captured women nurturing their children, um, but also, you know, with that, working unpaid home labor, you know? So So it was radical because it wasn't like the formal sitting in a family group setting. And And there really wasn't any ordinary sort of depictions of women in paintings like that. Um, And it showed them, um, you know, bathing their babies. Uh, There's one uh, I'm thinking of of them like feeding ducks in a boat. Um, Oh, that sounds cute. Yeah, Yeah. it is very charming and and sweet. But it's interesting because she never married or had kids. So she was really, you know, depicting something that she didn't even have herself, but she, you know, uh, created this this uh, the the story of women through her paintings. How common was it to have like j- to be a female artist at the time? I, I always think of a lot of those artists as men. So it wasn't really that common, but around her time, this is sort of like the first wave of feminism and they're starting to like have more opportunities. So l- let me go back a little bit into her Pittsburgh roots and I'll share more of that. Um, Cassatt, she grew up in an upper middle class family um, here in Allegheny City on the north side. Um, Her father was a stockbroker and her brother Alexander actually later became the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. So they were pretty well off, um, which, you know, contributed to her privilege of eventually, you know, having access to the arts. Um, And she was very serious about becoming an artist. So she began studying at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in in Philadelphia at just 15. Um, So, you know, there was some accessibility, but um, by 1866, she actually left the academy uh, because she was so irritated by the attitude of male students and teachers. Um, They just like weren't you know, moving fast enough for her. Um, it, they were, you know, sort of minimizing the the skills of women and women weren't even allowed to use live models. Oh, what was the reasoning there? They were too delicate to be around like, <laughs> live really? people. <laughs> oh, dear women. It's only fruit for you. <laughs> I have no idea, honestly. I mean, I don't I don't know what their reasoning was, um, but it seems pretty absurd. Um, so she decided to study on her own. She said, peace out, Pennsylvania. Um, Her mother and her family friends accompanied her to Paris, where she studied privately with artists. Um, That was still a little bit hard to get into the scene there as a woman, so she had to study privately. She couldn't go to the schools. And did her mother have to come with her as like a chaperone, too? Yeah, she was the chaperone. Old school. No study abroad. (laughs) Um, But she attained a permit to be a copyist at the Louvre. Um, 
so I think that's really interesting. That just means that she can sit and study and paint and like copy those oh. paintings. Um, and by 1877, she was invited by, you may recognize this name, Edgar Degas, um, to show her work with the Impressionists or what they called the Independents. Um, and these people, their work were like, was like revolutionary and the genesis of modern art, we could say. Um, it's kind of interesting thinking about her journey from like Allegheny City, the Pittsburgh region to France, um, to then become an Impressionist painter because shout out to producer Elizabeth Kama. I learned this from her, but apparently in the early 1900s, there were a lot of um, artists, including Impressionists, who were really drawn to Pittsburgh because there was this fascination with kind of capturing urban beauty. And they were really inspired by, I mean, we've all heard these stories about in Pittsburgh, you needed to have the streetlights on all day because it was so smoggy and polluted and dark that you couldn't right. see. And that it created kind of this like, Landscape. I mean, for, yeah, like for people living here, a hellscape, but for artists, <laughs> like, you know, something really a visually. twilight sort yeah, of. Yeah. yeah. And like just something really like visually compelling to try to capture, you know, the look of the smog. I know, I think the Carnegie Museum had an exhibit several years ago that included some of this artwork. So it's just interesting to think about her kind of making this journey to France. And I think there were French artists and artists yeah. kind of from all over who came here uh, to study our landscape. But obviously she was, you know, also capturing something really different. These you right. know, precious, these beautiful scenes of motherhood, which, you know, is, is a different vibe than totally. a smoggy street at 9 a.m. <laughs> So, you know, we just established none of us had heard of her until, Francesca, you went on this deep dive. Like, is there anything in Pittsburgh that's honoring her? Is she, you know, considered a local hero at all? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. So there is a historical marker on the north side. And the wild thing about this is that I have probably passed this plaque a thousand times, but I never noticed it. It's at the corner of Ridge Avenue and Allegheny Avenue, um, you know, over by like CCAC's campus, but headed towards the North Shore T station. It's a shame because it's not actually accessible to like get to. It's um, overgrown with weeds and shrubs and it's just it's sad and no wonder why I never noticed it. I'd love to see it move to a more accessible location or cleaned up. Um, yeah, just so more people know about Mary Cassatt. Okay, so this plaque, you know, if you do a little bushwhacking, it sounds like you bring a machete. <laughs> but um, can we actually see her paintings here in Pittsburgh? Are they on display anywhere? So surprisingly, and unfortunately, none of her pieces are in our museums. Wow. I know. I'm like... I, Someone so, bring Mary to Pittsburgh. Yeah, bring her back. <laughs> yeah. Bring her back to the sexist yeah. state <laughs> that she fled. <laughs> right. You can, however, find some of her pieces on the Carnegie Museum of Art website. Um, this is kind of neat. One painting, um, it's titled uh, A Portrait of the Artist's Mother, is accompanied by an audio step-by-step -step guided meditation, like a stillness meditation. And then another one titled The Banjo Lesson is accompanied by music from the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. They're pretty cool. We'll put those links in the show notes. Um it seems so interactive. I really like that. Yeah. Um, you guys know I get romantic about <laughs> Pittsburgh things. But um, to take... You know. <laughs> right. <laughs> but take this story as a lesson to keep your eyes open for the magic in the mundane. You could pass something 99 times and finally notice its beauty on the 100th time. 
That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. Music is by Benji. Megan Harris is our host. Maria Carter is our audio producer. Francesca DeBecco writes our newsletter. And I'm the lead producer, Mallory Falk. And last thing, don't forget to fill out that listener survey. It's your chance to win $250. You can find it online at citycast.fm slash survey. We will be off on Monday for Memorial Day, but we'll be back on Tuesday with more news from around the city. Have a great long weekend. That's the perfect end. Yeah, I've got nothing to say. (laughs) Wrap it up.